You're listening to the City Light Sermon Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. There's like an app you can get on Instagram where you can make everything look like it's from 1992 with the date on it, and it makes it look vintage. I'm a sucker for This Is Us and old nostalgic uh, videos. There's a sweet kind of sadness, I think, to some of those videos because we know that we have pictures just like that, and those pictures capture moments that are never the same again. And there's beauty in those times to remember, but there's also sometimes bitterness and pain and hardship, and we know that those pictures, they don't last, that the people in those pictures sometimes are not with us anymore, and the relationships are never quite the same, and so there's a, there's a bittersweet nostalgia you know, to, to some of those pictures. But we're in a series called uh, Prodigal Sons, a conversation that is about not just sons and brothers in the bloodline sense, but in the spiritual sense. And, um, and it's one of the most famous, I read uh, earlier this week, one of the most famous well-known stories around the world. Um, it's captivated hearts from all different times and all different uh, places and generations um, because it's about a universal theme. It's about sonship and it's about fatherhood. Um, and when we read this story, there's this natural ache, I think, that comes upon us when we read the story because we know about the ache of loss of family members. We know the strain of relationships. We know the power and impact of unforgiveness. We know the bitterness that can come in beautiful places like family. And that ache, Jesus tells us in the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep and then the prodigal son, is supposed to remind us of heaven and teach us of heaven as well. That there is an ache in our families, but there is also an ache in heaven. There is a something's not quite right. There is something is missing. There is something not right yet that happens, not only between our family members, our brothers and sisters, our moms and our dads, but also between God and his children. And, and when we put ourselves in the shoes of being a younger brother, because even if we don't have an older brother or sister, uh, we know what it's like to be the younger person in the group. When we put our, our, our feet in the shoes of the older brother, we know what it's like to be that character. And some of us as parents know what it's like to have the ache of a child that's not as close to home as they should be. And, and all of these aches, they're meant to preach to us about heaven. They're not just, just, just uh, immediately informing us about our, our immediate uh, experience, but also our future experience, our heavenly experience. And so this is, this is a series that's uh, closing up today because it's very short. It's just about the younger brother, and I'll take on the older brother um, today. But um, it's a series about prodigal sons because we're all prodigal sons uh, in a way. Um, Timothy did a brave and powerful job. If you didn't get to listen to it, listen to it on the podcast of, of the younger son that was kept away from home by shame. And today we'll talk about the older brother who was kept away from home by way of pride. That where shame kept the younger brother, pride kept the older brother away from being home. And, and, and we are both of these brothers and sisters all at the same time. And forgive me as I use the word son and brother this morning. I do mean, of course, also mothers and daughters and sisters and aunties as well. Uh, but when I was um, probably about 21, we had um, uh, this pastor that came in that spoke to our youth group um, that some of you guys know named Rich Hodge. And uh, Rich Hodge, I never say it to him, but I call him in the back of my, my mind um, a desert father. I don't know what that word even means. That's probably, I hope it's not, it's not a bad word. But I mean it to mean that he, he kind of, uh, time kind of slows down sometimes when you're near a guy like Rich. And 
we were in the middle of a worship service uh, for youth, and I thought I was going to be ministering to youth, and he was ready to minister to me, or at least the Lord was. And uh, Rich had pulled me aside, and he gave me this uh, prophetic word. He gave me this word that um, he believed was from heaven and was uh, given to me to go and see if it resonated with my heart. And so he said to me, um, Oliver... <clears throat> I get this picture for you um, this evening at this youth event that uh, you, have, you have kind of played the role of different sons in your life, that you kind of started as this prodigal son when you were younger, and you kind of rebelled and ran from home. Um, and there was a season after that where you um, fit more re readily into the shoes of the older son, that you were uh, distant from home, but not because of rebellion, but because of a, of a self-righteousness in a way, he was saying. And, and so you've played both of those things, and, and he's saying, um, but, but the way that you've been called, like your name and when you were created, you were, your identity, your purpose was never to be the older son or to be the younger son, but to be the beloved son. Coming out of Matthew 4, when the Holy Spirit fell on Jesus like a dove, and the words from heaven were these beautiful, powerful, loving words that everyone else got to hear publicly that were given privately to the heart of Jesus from the Father to Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Not an older son, not a prodigal son, not a black sheep son, not a approving son, not a prodding son, not a lazy son, but a, a beloved son. This is, this is who you are. This is who you're meant to be and, and walk into that. And he was, he was pretty accurate. I, I, I was from zero to 10, I would say, kind of was, that was the first chapter of life. Um, I was the kid that wanted to be bad, but I was too nerdy to fit in with the bad kids. So it's like that old, I don't know, some theologian once said, we're unsuccessful sinners. I wanted to hang out with kids that were bad. I would be like, hey, I'm bad. My name's Oliver. I'm so bad. I'd throw toilet paper at people's trees. I'm so bad. Watch out. There might be money missing off the dresser because I'm that bad. I never really did anything bad, but I kind of like that, you know, wanted to have that persona at least. And I, and I did get into some trouble, but it seemed that the Lord wouldn't let me get into all that much trouble. I think my parents raised me too right, or my name's Oliver, or whatever the case may be. But um, for better or worse, I, I, I followed uh, Kyra through a program called Flirt to Convert into youth group in about 1998. And, um, and, and I don't know what it was that happened, but I mean, even before I was baptized, I kind of came to the Lord through a teen study Bible. This really cheesy skateboarder was on the front, and it was all like, jesusisrad.com, go visit us, or whatever. And, and so um, I, I started following Jesus, and I went to youth group with Kyra, and uh, they just, they, they pegged me to be the worship leader guy, and I, and I, I tell the staff, I, I, have, um, I have an album out. It's called Pitchy and Passionate, if you ever want to hear it. And that's kind of like my slogan for the way that I lead worship. But nonetheless, I, I led worship, and then they kind of got me in this small group to be the leader of the small group. And, and, um, and I, I felt like for the first time I, I belonged somewhere, and, um, and maybe I liked that uh, status and position even too much. Um, there was a persona that came with that in Indiana versus down here where a lot of people are Christian up there. It was like a really big deal. You, he, they'd be like, oh, you pray for your food. You must be really religious, you know, at lunchtime. And there was this kind of persona that was built up that I liked about, about being a Christian um, that I would say probably in retrospect um, out, out, outstanded and, and really was bigger than uh, my inner life and identity as a Christian on the inside, the outside of who I was because I wrote, you know, 1 John, you know, 4 on my Nalgene bottle um, was, was more apparent to the outer world than I probably would have said and testified uh, to the inner world. But I share that because really we're all each of these sons. We're all prodigal sons. Uh, we're all prodding older sons. We're all, we're all called to be beloved sons and daughters. Um, 
But there's so much that gets between us and home. There's so much that gets between us and God. And, and we almost wanted to call the series Prodigal Sons because the reality is this morning that the older son is actually just as far as home, from home, as we'll read in a moment, just as far from home, ironically, as the younger son is. Even though uh, his address is in the same place and he knows where the milk is in the fridge and even though he calls his dad, dad, um, and he's working in the field next door and, and even though the brother like goes to Vegas to go spend his inheritance, the older brother finds out in the middle of the story that he's actually just as far away from home as the younger brother was, having never left it in the first place. And so this is what the passage says. Um, Meanwhile, uh, in verse 25, we'll start. This is Luke chapter 15 and verse 25, following the story that Timothy concluded on last week. As that was going on, the older son was in the field. It's important to know that because um, everything, uh, every word, there's no word missed. Like there's no spared expense when it comes to the metaphor. He's, he's being meaningful and intentional. Where you find the character physically is in many ways where we expect to find this character emotionally. So the son is not in the home, in the living room. Uh, he's not in the driveway playing basketball. He's in the field working is where the older son is. And when he came near the house, the, heard the music and the dancing, and he called out to one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Your brother has come. He came home last night, he said, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because uh, he has him back safe and sound. And so we see the son, the older son, is just as far, if not farther away, emotionally and relationally, than the younger son is in the field while the older son is in the pig fields and in the slop in Vegas. That the, that the younger son geographically was far, but the older son was emotionally just as far. He He's in the field. He's not in the home. And when he has to ask about his father's business, he has to ask, ask a servant. He's, he's lower than a servant in the way of information and access and closeness and up-to-dateness. He, he has to ask a servant. And you'll see in the passage later on that when he encounters the father, he doesn't encounter the father in the living room. Actually, the father has to go just as far away from the house to reach the older son as he does the younger son because both the older son and the younger son are far from God. Both the younger son and the older son are prodigals. And so we have to, as Christians, we need to carry this healthy trepidation. It'll be on the screen. We have to have this, this sort of apprehension, which is good for us to have. Like if we're reading the scripture right, and if you're a history teacher and you read history books about Christianity the right way, you can't be blind to this healthy apprehension. That scripture and history is filled and common with people who are close to church but far from God. When we read scripture, when we see the, the anthology of God and man, it's, not un, it's, it's more likely that people will be in church, close to church, close to service of God, in small groups, baptized at a young age. It's not, this isn't like a very uncommon, whoops, one got through the, no, it's very common actually that people, people thought they were close to God, but they were far from God. They thought that they were home, but they weren't home. And that's the scary thing about it is, is what Jesus is showing us is that, is that this son on the outside and to himself would have thought he was home, but he was further from home than the son that was in Vegas, the son that was far away. This is the way that Jesus says it 
in Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons and in your name, perform many miracles and sit on deacon boards and be pastors and to be, you know, women's group leaders and to be ministry leaders and to be worship leaders. I mean, isn't that what we're talking about? He said, didn't we do all these things? And he said, I I tell them plainly, I never, I never knew you. You were, you were in my house, but I never knew you. You were never home. You were home in church, but you weren't home in me. And so verse 21, quite plainly, and then it follows up, remember, with the passage, the parable about the man who builds his house on the rock, both the man who builds his house on the rock and the one that the father is admonishing in verse 21. It's the one who does the will of my father, the one who responds to his whisper, is the one who has found himself in sonship. So I have to have an apprehension, a good, a holy, like it's good for my health to know who I am in the story, apprehension, that if I'm a pastor for eight years and I've got a great family and I'm on a stage on Sunday, that that has nothing to do with whether or not I can respond to his whisper or not. Like we have to have a healthy, wholehearted, pure, loving, intimate revelation that what my last name is and who the household I grew up in and the small group that I'm a part of has nothing to do with the whisper in my heart. The whisper will guide me to those places, yes. The whisper will lead me to those places. I will find comfort in those places because the whisper has told me to do that, but no one else can, can take the privilege of and no one else can take the responsibility of you and me hearing the whisper of God in our heart and responding. And whisper is the home of God, not church. The whisper is the home of God, not our friendship. The whisper is the home of God. And so when, when God is telling an, an, an analogy, a, a, a parable about home, he is, he is not talking about a zip code and he is not talking about a denomination because legalism doesn't know a denomination. He's talking about a whisper. And he's asking, do you hear my voice? Do you find home in my whisper? What it is you do and where it is you go to find comfort and guidance when you are upside down, that is your home. Is it in presence, in his presence, or is it in substances is the question this morning. Where you find your comfort when you need comfort is your home. Where is your home is the question this morning. When you need truth, is it in Google or is it in the scriptures this morning? That's the question. That's the only question. Do you know me? Do I know you? Are you home with me? That's the question. Is it his whisper or is it culture that motivates you? Only you can answer that question. Only you can answer that question. There's no There's no water bottle and no bumper sticker and there's no Bible big enough that you can hold that will answer the question, are you sensitive to his whisper this morning? And so it's scary that the older brother thinks he's closer to God than he does, than he is. He thinks he's home. But we see in the story he's not for many reasons. In verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. 
So his father went out and pleaded with him. We see it's not because he's lacking access, it's because he's angry and lacks a will to go in. And, and we find out why that is, like how that developed, that somebody thought they were home, drifted into disconnection, and didn't realize how far they drifted. This is how we find out what happened. Verse 29, he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. All the, this is important words. All these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Have you ever gotten in a fight before and you just got so emotionally upset that you finally just said what you wanted to say for like 10 years? Like you just snapped you got in a fight with your spouse, and you just say, I never liked your cookies. Had a, it's, an, it's epic. I'm going to take my time on this. But Kyra's dad, dad and mom are like the sweetest couple of all time. It would have been a reality show with no drama. It was just a sweet relationship. And he's gone on to be with the Lord, but it was just a great moment. I was not in the living room when it happened, but we talk about it every Thanksgiving because he snapped one time, and he doesn't snap that often, but he snapped this one time, and he said, and I'll never like bran flakes. Just said it to her, just like smack down. Like, I'll never like bran flakes, blah. I'm waiting for the day for Kyra to be like, and I never liked this as us. That would really get me right in my heart if she said that to me. Don't, don't tell her I'd be vulnerable to that. It's a, sometimes especially Christian people, you know what I'm saying, like church people, uh, especially us Christian people, it takes sometimes a little bit of a fight to get the feistiness up, and we say what we actually think, like we actually say how we feel. Because in a good way, we have a sense of don't sin in your anger and have a temperedness and have a spirit of self-control. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it can, in some ways, belabor the process of conflict, which is necessary to connection. And we see that it takes a fight and a party. It takes a party with music from a long way off. It finally takes a fight and a confrontation with the father that the older son finally realizes where he is all this time. He says, this whole time, and you can almost hear him learning what his heart is thinking, what it's always been thinking as the words come out of his mouth. Like he didn't know he was thinking this until he says it in verse 29. Look, all of these years I've been slaving for you and you never, and I never disobeyed your orders. And still you killed the fattened calf for him and you never gave me a calf for me and my friends. And so we see the... The facts come out on the table. The real inside, the true colors show for this older son. And we realize that the reason he's in the field, it wasn't just because he was busy or because it was a busy season or because he was a, a workaholic or because he was trying to get things done for the Lord. There, there was a reason for him being out there. And the reason was that even though his name was son and he thought he was a son, and even though he was on the will, and even though he lived in the house, he was living perpetually as a slave. His name was son, but his heart said slave. He walked like a slave and thought like a slave and talked like a slave. And here we find, it's actually uh, slide, slides-wise higher up um, at the beginning, but here we find why the older son and the younger son are actually more in common than not the younger prodigal is 
overtly rebellious for his independence from God. The older son, who is like the younger son, also desires independence. And this is how he thinks. Independence for the younger son was, I'm going to take my inheritance and run without relationship. I'm going to run for my independence. But where the younger son ran for independence, the older son went to the field and he worked for his independence. And this is what unrelational, striving-driven, performance-driven work will do to our hearts over time. We will find ourselves in the same field as the older brother when we believe that God's not good enough from Genesis 3. He is not enough. He is holding out on us. And I will get my independence, but not by running, but by working, by earning my autonomy. Because, this is what I have on the screen, if we work hard enough, we won't need anyone. We won't owe anyone, and we will be strong and without need of God and others. Both the younger son and the older son left for the same reasons, went to different distances, and ended up disconnected from the father because they desired in their heart and independence, and I don't need you, and autonomy. And so the older son and the younger son have a how did I get here moment. The younger son was in a pig pen, and the older son was in the field just next door when he heard the music off. And he hears these words coming out of his mouth, I was a slave, not a son, I was a slave. I was lower than a servant is what his heart screams out in this moment. And a clarity comes to both of them. He was not living as a son, but he was living as a slave. What if... This is the question I have for us as an application. But what if, what if we were to think, because the outside world, because we're not as bad as back then, or because we're not as bad as this person, or because we belong to this group, or because we're part of such and such church, or because we give this amount of money, what if some of that were to take a a larger significance in our life, we would think the outer world mattered more, mattered more than the inner world. We would think that the work for the God mattered more than the whisper to our heart and the worship of his name. What if we were to get the cart before the horse and we were to actually think we were closer to God than we actually thought? What if we thought we were sons, but we acted like slaves? The motivation in our heart was that more of a slave than as a son. What if, we were, what if we were passionately devoted to Jesus 10 years ago in college and have scripture verses and quotes from books that we've read tattooed in our heart, validating why we think we're close to God because we were close to God 10 years ago. But in in today, in, in current reality, we're a long way off. We fell in love with the church. We fell in love with the small group, with the program. We fell in love with the ideals and the virtues. But long, long ago, we're a, we're a been there, done that Christian. We read all the books already. We're waiting on other people to catch up. And we apply sermons to other people. And we apply scriptures to other people. And meanwhile, haven't heard a whisper in our heart for who knows how long. 
God speaks to us in the scripture and he says, I meet the legalist the same place as I meet the lawless person at the front door. I leave the house to go find them. But don't expect that just because you've done work for me in the field that you're close to me in your heart. Don't expect that because you work that you're worshiping. Closeness to God is not about proximity. Closeness to God is not about zip code. It's about the whisper. Do you respond to his whisper? If you interrupted your day-to-day, would you be devoted to him? Is it a joy to follow him? Are you in love with him? Have you not forgotten your first love? Are you on fire for him? Are you abandoned to him? Are you surrendered to him? This is not about a Kiwanis community club. This is about responding to a whisper. And so the the question that I want to answer in closing today is if we find ourselves listening to some of this and wonder if maybe we're a little bit further off than we thought and wondering if somehow the, the outside identifier and persona for us and our friends and immediate relatives might look like sonship, that the internal government and the way that we work is actually more like slave, how would we move from a spirit of slavery into a spirit of sonship? How would that process look? How would that happen? What would we need to hear from the Father? What would we need to believe in our heart and in our mind and our soul? That would be an important question to answer. And we might even say that the journey of moving from shame to home might even be easier sometimes than pride to home because pride is so invisible and blind and blinds us of its, of its problem, of its cancer. And so this is where I landed on this thing for our application points. To me, because, because the, the son who is a long way off, because the younger son sits in shame as he returns to home, he, he, he repents by way of a change of scenery. Like his Monday following Sunday is going to look completely different. He's moving town. He's changing friends. He's changing his diet. He's changing his sleeping. He's changing everything. Like, like it's one of those things where it's almost easier to change everything than just to change a few things. The thing about the older son is that he'll wake up, if he does, with the sonship of Revelation, the, next, uh, the, the spirit of sonship and the revelation of sonship, he'll wake up the next Monday doing the exact same thing, hopefully, but for different purposes and with different perspective. And this is the difficult thing is because It's so difficult to teach an old dog new tricks. It's so difficult to unlearn so that we can learn. If we've always operated as a slave, it's sometimes difficult to take off the paradigm, take off the mask, take off the lens of legalism and and, and performance so that we might be called back and drawn back to the whisper. And so all of the application points this morning aren't really about theology, but my prayer is out of Ephesians 2 that we would move from slavery to sonship through the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That, that the legalist side of us, and all of us have a legal prodigal side, a performing prodigal, all of us do. We're both of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And whereas the younger son maybe needs a better theology that God is good, the older son knows all about the theology and, the, and, and he, he could quote it backwards and forwards. And so he doesn't need another Bible lesson. Actually, he's been listening to God with the wrong voice his entire life, or she's been listening to to God, and, and the words from the Father's mouth have been intercepted and replaced with orders. What was meant to be an invitation became an obligation. And, and every invitation to become a son can even just become another obligation if they're not careful. 
It just becomes another, oh, I guess I'm not a son. I got to go and do this. And oh, Oliver's saying, I got to go be a daughter. I got to go and do this. It's like, it's not the words. It's the, it's the framework by which we as older prodigals look at the world and look at our father. And so this is where prayer comes to mind as I, as I share some of these points. Like, I almost want to just say, as you read these things, don't go and change things. Ask God to show you what they are. Open my eyes is the prayer, not to believe something new, but to see something differently, to, to see a belief that we've had in different ways. Does that make sense? So I want us to put on the glasses of revelation that he would give us. He wants to give us glasses for revelation. He wants us to see old things in new ways and that we're never uh, too old to change and that we're never too old to not need to change, that we are all in a process, all needing mercy, and we are all needing to come home and we never want to miss the party that's being thrown and the calf that's being slayed for the joy of the kingdom that's within us, righteousness, peace, and joy. So this is what the revelation that older prodigals like me need every day. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you, you are always with me. You need to have a revelation of, of sonship, a revelation of, of presence, of he is a father, and he partners with us, and we are never alone. We have to understand that. We have to live in that. We have to question things that don't support that. And secondly, everything I have is yours. These, these are the sweet, liberating, not buying out of slavery or, or the exchange of a circumstance for another. It's not new theology. It's actually a very simple theology that's sometimes hard to believe in circumstances, but these are the two things that... Every older brother prodigal needs to hear in their heart is that I am with you, beloved son. Everything I have is yours, beloved daughter. I am always with you. You'll never spend, you'll never spend a moment without me. And everything I have, I, I don't hold it, I give it. I share it with you. Everything, you, you'll always have me. And there'll be a day when somebody that you don't want to pass away too early will pass away. And I will be with you then. You will always have me. Like, you'll always have me. Build a friendship with me because it's the only thing that will last. You'll always have, you'll always have me. You, you've got to know this. You've got to have this sense that the world is going to change and trouble will come, but you will, you'll always have me. And you have to let that be your ethos, that you'll always have me and everything I have is yours. The first revelation that we need to understand from this story to move from slavery to sonship is this revelation that heaven is a party. Any sevens on the Enneagram? Y'all like this passage. Sevens are the enthusiasts and they know how to have fun and heaven's reminding us heaven's a party. So he said to Jesus in this parable, hey, tell me what God is like. He's like, let me see. A party, music, dancing, and food. How's that sound? Okay, yeah, I heard that seven. Most of the time we think about angels and diapers and harps, but it's probably more like football and tailgating. Every time you see the marriage supper of land, there's food, there's, there's fellowship, there's friendship, there's no tear, there's no worry. The other day I was putting up the Christmas tree and Kyra said, you put Christmas trees together like a man. And I said, is that a compliment or a criticism? Like, what, where are we here? I don't know where I'm at. You put me, I'm lost. You put together Christmas trees like it's business, like you just need to get it done. I'm like, of course, we got to get it done. It's a Christmas thing. We got to get it done. She's like, that's not the point. The point of Christmas isn't to get it done. The point of Christmas is to party. Sevens, where are y'all at? ENFPs? Amen. 
This thing is a party, the first miracle that Jesus ever performed. I know we're in the South. I probably shouldn't say this. Was turning water into wine. Jesus, Jesus parties, not in the kind of animal horse John Belushi extremism, escapism party, but the celebration that the kingdom of heaven has come. There's nothing to worry about because he's already been done. He's already been winning. He's already victorious. And everything you ever face will fall down before you at the name of Jesus. That's the kind of party that we're always in. And we lose joy when we think that our work has to do with performance instead of a party. We will do our errands and assignments differently when we go shopping for a party than when we do for any other item. For a, for, for, a, for a tax, what do you call it when they check you? The IRS, they come and check you for things. Audit, yeah, we'll prepare for, we could prepare for life like an audit when he wants to prepare for a party. And when we go and talk to people, it's a party. And when we go and fellowship with people, it's a party. And when we go and sharpen people, it's so that they can host parties better. And we go and reach people, it's so that they can come to the party. This is the deal. It's like, we can't be, we can't be thinking we're in this revelation of we've got to go and get ready because this is the sinking ship of the Titanic. The kingdom of heaven is righteousness, peace, and joy. And there is no such thing as seriousness as the fruit of the Spirit. And so we see that heaven, heaven is a party. This is the revelation we have to understand, that everything is, is a joy. Every, it's all about joy. None of it is really about duty. And true sons are exchanging their duty for joy until all they have left in, is joy. And this is like the Westminster Presbyterian most you know, conservative statement of all time, right? We exist for what? To enjoy God. Do you enjoy him? Do you delight in him? Is he, is, is he a joy to you? Do you wake up in the morning with joy? You might be in the field instead of in the home. And that's probably one of the saddest things that you could read in all the scriptures. Here's this guy who's so close from home, he doesn't even know where the party is. And he finds out that he wasn't invited to the party or didn't get to the party at least because he hears the song somewhere else. And that's the power of, of, the, of the enemy to snatch up and exchange a truth for a lie. It's because the father probably told him to come home a hundred times, but he never understood why. And he has to learn that he's not home by a party that somebody else is throwing. And that's how it'll sneak up on us as legalists is because we'll realize that we're not on fire for Jesus anymore and it's some other youth group that he's occupying. And we remember the days when we were at the party, but we're not at the party anymore. Haven't been to the party in a long time. And we've got to have a revelation as we read this thing that Jesus in his words and his actions, he is hosting a party. Number two, we need a revelation that God is our father and not our master. God teaches us. He only called, Jesus only called God Father. He only called him Father. And the second word of the Lord's Prayer is our Father. It's important that we know him not as Master and as Father. As John 15 says, I came, and one of the reasons I came, Jesus saying in John 15, is to move you from being a slave to being a friend. How many of you guys know that Abraham was a son and a friend of God, and he actually got to change God's mind because of the conversation? That God gave him orders, but in those orders were conversations, and conversations allowed for relationship, not just go and do. There was conversations. And it's amazing to me how many people in the New Testament come up to Jesus, and they just say, Jesus, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Me what to do. Fix this. Tell me what to do. And how many times does Jesus say, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I want to ask you this question. What do you want? I want to know what you want. Oftentimes, the Israelites liked the slavery of Egypt more than the freedom of, of Canaan. And we like commands more than conversations because it's a lot of work and responsibility to steward the desires of our heart. And then we become responsible for our happiness, not somebody else or not God. 
And we go to God and we say, not what do I want? I don't want to have wants. I want to know what you want for my life because I don't want to think about what I want and then have to make decisions about how to get what I want. Remember, I was teaching one time, complaining about the lesson plans, complaining about the kids, complaining, doing the whole complaining thing. You know those teacher thing, complaining about stuff because it's our right. You know, we're entitled to this sort of stuff to complain about the public school system. And I just remember one of the mentors just said to me, he had known me for a while and he would talk to me about, you know, life and family and ministry and stuff like that. And he just sort of paused after one of these sessions and said, can I ask you something? What do you want? He said, do you want to be in ministry or do you want to be a teacher? And it was one of those questions that Jesus would ask the people and really like screw you up because all of a sudden you realize you weren't in the place that you thought that you were. Because if I wanted to be a teacher, I would go on and make more money. I would go to school. I would get graduated. I would go and get a promotion. I would go get my whatever, master's or PhD, and I would make enough money. And I'd stop to have to complain because I'd actually make the money that I'd want. Or if I wanted to be a pastor, I would stop going to school. I would trust in the Lord. I would go to seminary. I would give my life to the profession, come what may. And I would go after the things that I want in faith. And so instead of actually having to know the desire of my heart and make a decision about what I wanted, I sat back in passivity and I just said, Lord, you're going to have to fix this. When he's the whole time saying, "Mm -mm, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I want to know what you want. I am a friend. I'm not your, your master. I'm your father. I have come to bring relationship back to earth. And oftentimes, we want to project that responsibility to somebody else. And so how many times do you, in the course of a day, say, I have to, I got to, I need to. Somebody else has got to do this for me. Somebody else has got to change this, otherwise I can't. And the reality is, is hidden in that. It's just a, a lack of desire to want to go into the house. It's a lack of desire. This is the reality. You know why we don't have rest? It's because we kind of want rest, but we kind of don't want it. We kind of want to be busy. And if we want rest, if you want rest, you can have rest. But you got to tell them you want it. you got to decide that you want it. You have to make decisions. If you want joy, we have joy. We have access. We've never not had access. And meanwhile, we wait on God to give us the command just to make it happen out of thin air. And then we get mad and angry and we wonder why we're not at the party. It's because we don't really want to have joy. We choose things continually that don't perpetuate joy in our life. And then we wonder why we don't have joy. And Jesus continues to remind you, listen, I'm your friend. And I'm going to give you what you have. But you're empowered and responsible to go and, go and build it. You're empowered and responsible to go and walk it out. I'm not going to mitigate or circumvent your responsibility to know the desires of your heart and be obedient and make decisions with those desires. God is our father, not our master. And we need a revelation, lastly, of inheritance that is always asked and not earned, that he says, everything that I have is for you. You have everything. As you go and throw this party and as you decide in your heart, as you stop just following the law of God, but lean into the spirit of God, which would be the dreams of God, everything that I have is at your disposal as you walk it out in obedience and in relationship with me. We see we see the walk of faith as a tight wire. My friend Dave Rhodes says this. We see the life of God, you know, as a tight, water, tight, tight wire. And the laws of God can prohibit us and protect us from the nightmare of God. But they can never release us to the dreams of God. Only the Holy Spirit and freedom and relationship can do this. And so the older son in us just wants to walk the tight wire and say, if I do this, then you'll throw the party for me. And he's going, you're never going to find the party unless you ask for it. And the party's always yours. You have to ask for it. And so the closing remark I have is that everything you have is yours. The question is, are you going to receive it? Are you going to ask for it? There's a lot of theology in the Bible as you read it. Asking matters. And sovereignty 
matters too, but asking in sovereignty will matter. My daughter Rose is full of vision, way more vision than I have now or that I certainly had when I was 12. And she gets more stuff. You know why? Because she asks for it. And maybe the question today for you as a slave into sonship is, when was the last time you just asked him for something? You didn't earn it. You didn't try and just go make it happen. But she said, this is what I want. I entrust it to you. Your will be done. And I'm going to ask you for the same. I'm going to name it. And so I know who to give credit for when I get it. And so this is the final comment. It'll be on the screen. We move from slavery to sonship when we get a revelation that is God is father, heaven is a party, and life is to be asked for and not to be earned. I'm going to pray as we close and invite uh, the band to come up for just this last response song. A couple of things specifically I want to pray for. If you would pray with me as, as you stand, just four things I have um, on, on my list here, God. But we just, we ask you to give us glasses for sonship. We ask, we know that this thing doesn't happen by thinking better. It has to happen by yielding better. It has to happen by running to your whisper more, quicker, and, and faster and with more fervency to run towards you as our first and our only. And we know that when we go there and we ask you, we'll always be met. And so I ask for a faith that would return to you this morning. Always return to you, continually return to you, and never be caught in the field when it's time to be at a party in, in your home. And I ask that you'd return us as sons and daughters and give us that spirit of sonship. The second thing I want to ask for is, God, we would never miss a minute of the party. We would never miss a minute. We would never hear the music from far off, but we would be in the middle of your party. And we would not miss a minute. I mean, what a shame it would be to go up to heaven and, said, and, and you say to us, these are all the things I wanted to give you that you never asked for and that we would never miss a minute of you. I pray for a life with you, God, and receive everything it is that you'd ever want to give us, that we would always ask you, we would go to you and ask as a son. We'd never earn it or go and take it or go and try it. We'd just ask and we would know that you're the giver. This is a gift this is not an earning. This is not a competition. So we ask for it. I thank you for City Lights as you are, are growing us and maturing us, strengthening us. The way we would measure maturity is by laughter and joy, not by piousness and seriousness. That it would be how, how much joy does this body have? How much joy does this family have? I ask that you would, you would deliver us into that thing into that anointing, into that revelation, into that fullness of joy in your presence in Psalm 16. I ask that you would deliver it all without holding back and we ask for it and wait for it because we know where it comes from in Jesus' name. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please let us know by leaving feedback on our iTunes podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.